all have the ability to choose how we work, how we live, how we build those skills, and how to thrive. If we can get to that point where awareness is built into our lives in tangible ways, we thrive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with WorldStrides, and I'm so excited about today's episode. Today, we'll be talking about the importance of mindfulness and finding joy in our work as international educators. I'm excited to be joined by my friend, Jane Berkeley-Berry, the Director of International Programs at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. Jane is one of my inspirations. She has taught me so much about the human spirit, learning, and connection over the years. Jane brings a holistic and mindful approach to her work and to her life, and all of us international education can learn from her. You do not want to miss this episode. Jane, welcome. Thank you for being here. Zach, it is an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. Absolutely. I'm so thrilled for the conversation we're about to have. Could you start by describing your current role at St. Anselm College to us? Of course. So as you said, I am the Director of International Programs and and Study Abroad at St. Anselm College. I like to say that we are small but mighty. I am a one-person office, and so my purview is everything study abroad, whether that is individual semester programs, short-term programs through providers, customized programs, faculty-led, and I also oversee our international student services for our international student population. Fabulous. So just a little bit going on, it sounds like. Just Uh, a little bit, yes. (laughs) Could you share a bit about the education abroad ecosystem at St. Anselm for us? Of course. So St. Anselm, is a is a very mission driven institution and we try to impart that in every element of what we do when we talk about global education at the college so we try very hard to have our students be really reflecting and thinking about the type of experience they want to have when they go abroad. And they do so, I think, in a very meaningful way. Something else that is a big part of of any study abroad experience for our students is the idea of community and service. So we do try to, for students who go on semester programs, for example, or through providers, we're always talking a lot about how they might be able to 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 be a part of the community and share some of their their values um, with with our students. So that's a huge part of what we do. We we offer a combination of different types of programs. Of course, we have you know, provider programs. We work with some amazing providers um, like World Strides, Teen, and ISA. Um, so we do that to give students as many different opportunities as we possibly can and different options and choices around the world. But we also do customize things as well. We do we have amazing faculty that take students on incredible faculty taught opportunities in different places. And then we do have a brand new customized semester program happening right now in Tuscania, Italy, which has been a pretty remarkable and wonderful addition to our portfolio. So we try to cover as many different uh, ways students can go abroad as possible. 
Uh, that's fantastic. I have been um, following your travels lately, and I've just loved seeing all the all the things you've been up to. So, Jane, you know, in many ways, international education is rejuvenating as we see the transformation of our students, and are you, we are uniquely situated to position others for success abroad and to engage in meaningful work. We are a field full of generous and thoughtful people, but no one has the unlimited capacity to give. How can we set healthy boundaries between our work life and downtime? Well, that's one of those million dollar questions, isn't it, Zach? People across industries ask this with great repetition. Very few people seem to have uh, some, some really good answers. A big part of that is because we all now live in a time for, for many of us when that work-life line is quite blurred. So it's really a challenge to figure out how to define that. People who find the greatest success with setting those types of boundaries are very intentional about it. Intentionality, we know it's kind of the secret sauce to many things, right? Uh, If we're going to be successful in running a 5K, we have to be intentional in our workouts. If we're going to go through some professional development or um, education or training, we have to be intentional in setting aside time and space to make it happen. If we're painting our house, planting a garden, we have to be intentional about planning it, how we're going to do it. So setting those work-life boundaries is exactly the same. Through habits of intentionality and bringing an intentional uh, purpose to what we're doing, like the kind we foster through contemplative practice, it comes a lot more easily. I love that. Yeah, it's such a great metaphor. And so, Jane, you know, any seasoned international education professional has tales of absolute joy in their work and has also experienced moments of extreme challenge. How would you say we can focus on the positive while remembering that those challenges make us stronger? Oh, that's a great question. Um, When we experience challenge, as difficult as it may be, it's important to remember that it doesn't last forever. But here's the thing. We function better in times of challenge when we don't fall prey to the emotional element, the judgment, self-criticisms that arise when things are tough. It's hard to allow the positive to share space with challenge when we assign judgment to that challenge. The challenge ends up feeling a lot bigger when we do that. But by allowing ourselves to be in the here and now and do so without judgment, whatever's happening will slowly start to lose its emotional hold on us. Now, yes, that may seem counterintuitive to being able to enjoy success, But negative emotions can feel a lot stronger than positive ones. So when we intentionally focus on being present during a time of challenge, our emotional selves don't react as strongly. Our bodies don't react as strongly. And when we practice this over and over again, we become stronger by virtue of the fact that our emotions aren't running the show. But here's something else that's really important when considering challenge versus success. When we slow down, Zach, and spend time 
being in that here and now space uh, through breath and focus, our minds actually start to do this kind of magical thing. We start looking at the root of problems instead of the problems themselves. We can slow down a little bit. We can minimize those stories that are so easily conjured up in our heads when we're ruminating and freaking out. Those stories we know oftentimes lead to stress, worry, anxiety, but take a few minutes to draw your awareness to your breath, for example, during those times, and that freak out fire hose gets turned down a little bit. We can all use some of that, right? Turning down that freak out fire hose. I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and and you know, so in this in this modern age in which we live, right? You know, technology has made it so that our workplace can easily spill over into our personal lives, with Teams chats dinging and text messages pinging at all hours of the day and night, um, pressuring us to be present at work at all hours. How can we protect our mental space when we are offline, or? How can we be truly offline? Just as with your first question about work-life boundaries, protecting our mental space is also about setting boundaries. We know part of any successful self-care routine is taking care of our mental health, right? But it can be hard to do sometimes. Again, we have to go back to that notion of intentionally setting protective space and boundaries. We do that over and over again, and eventually that starts to become a habit. Those protective boundaries don't have to be big things either. Sometimes that can be achieved by a walk outside, a little quiet time, sitting in your yard, then there are those times when we are really exhausted, completely fried, and this is when we really need to be offline, right? We need a stronger level of protection, and that's when we really need to practice that intentionality. We need to do it with more oomph. That might be when we elect to do something for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, Maybe we're hiking or biking, or we're doing a retreat of some sort. Our mental space is protected when we give it sufficient and reasonable rest, but we also have to determine how much sufficient and reasonable rest we need, which can take some time to unpack. It's a very individual thing, and it's probably for most of us, it certainly can be for me, easier said than done. And of course, you know, I have to state the obvious, we should always be working towards protecting our mental state without our phones, which is very hard to do, but it is so, so critically important. I was having dinner with a couple of friends the other night, right? And I accidentally left my phone at home. And at first I felt so naked, but you know, it really did allow me to just really enjoy where I was and with whom I was with. And I'm, I'm thinking I might make that a more a practice moving forward for myself, which for me is a big deal because I do love my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's shift our conversation just a little bit, Jane. So international educators, we face many competing priorities on a given day. How can we work to ensure that we prioritize ourselves as well? 
This is an area that I uh, know pretty well because, as I said, I'm a one-person office, so sometimes my work life bleeds into the rest of my life, and that is certainly not good. It's critically important for us to prioritize our opportunities for self-care. Let, let's call it prioritizing our priorities. You know how in order to have a healthy financial budget, we're supposed to pay ourselves first by putting you know, money into savings or retirement? Well, this is the same thing. If your mind isn't settled and balanced, you'll likely find that your tail is wagging your dog, which is not a healthy way to live or work. Allowing some moments of pause and breath and maybe doing this multiple times a day gives us a chance to balance out, center, we're more tuned in, we're more aware, we're fresher, we're lighter, we're more physically and mentally healthy. I, I don't have any magic tools for prioritizing one's own physical and mental health other than to say that taking small steps is a wonderful way to get started. I love it. Yeah, thank you for that. So what are some small steps that anyone could take to build in moments for mindfulness on a regular basis? How can we get started? Zach, this is absolutely what I love about mindful contemplative practice. You can practice this just about anywhere, anytime, for any length of time. You know, any little bit helps, right? Two minutes here, 20 minutes there. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need a gym membership. You don't need to take a class. You don't need a leadership summit. You don't need any of those things. Lots of different ways that we can build our contemplative muscles. I believe the phrase is called habit stacking when we start sort of building things up a, a little bit. Perhaps we begin our day with a two or three minute breathing exercise. We might even do that before we even get out of bed. Or maybe we sit with a cup of coffee or tea first thing in the morning with no phones and we just sit. We drink the beverage. We feel it going down our throat. We taste it. We breathe. From there, perhaps we walk mindfully from our car or our train to the office. Perhaps we give ourselves one or two minutes of focused breathing before we meet with a student. Some teams I've worked with actually start their meetings by having a couple of moments of quiet, phones turned um, face down so that people can kind of center in, focus their thoughts, focus on the agenda to get more present. As we practice these things, no matter how big or how small, we build our capacity for presence over time. And here's the thing, Zach, when we do those things over time, we start to feel better. We're less nervous, we're less agitated, we're less angry or anxious, confused, we sleep better. The rewards start to appear in small but significant ways, and we all like meaningful rewards for a job. Mindfulness is awareness, and 
the working definition of mindful meditation, I think, is really interesting. The working definition is paying attention on purpose without judgment. This is not fluffy, weird stuff. We might feel weird if we start adding meditative practice into our daily life, but how this all works, how the mind and the body connect in a positive way is actually part of neuroscience. This is one of the fastest growing areas of scientific research. It's, it's really interesting. There's a growing body of research and data now, you know, in the 70s, there were maybe, you know, a, a handful of publications. Now there's more than 7,000 studies, peer-reviewed articles, and publications. There is direct linkage between the mind, the breath, and focused awareness and it impacts our nervous system, that, that fight or flight reflex, our respiratory system, our circulatory system, memory, cognition, pain impulses, concentration. The studies showing the correlation between mindful practice and a decrease in illness and sick days, and conversely, the increase of productivity are really noteworthy. This is a practice whereby even being in those small moments of awareness on a regular basis, good things happen. Brilliantly put as always, my friend. So Jane, talking about shared challenges can be useful and uplifting. How can we find or create space in our own communities or workplaces for this type of dialogue? How can we then use that space in ways that helps us to process and progress? The key, of course, is to talk about shared challenges by incorporating some of those elements of, you know, active listening, empathy, respect. That's part of what makes those conversations, as you say, useful and uplifting. These are also tenets of contemplative practice. When we're able to talk about challenges within a psychologically safe space, which empathy and respect are foundational pillars of, we are often better able to share not only common pressure points, but we're able to process those more effectively. Now, opportunities for this may not be a naturally occurring thing in the office. So what do we do? Well, if we want to shift our office culture or incorporate some of those opportunities into our workday, first, you know, we, we have to walk the walk ourselves. If our office culture is toxic or unhealthy, or even if it's wonderful, we have to start with us. We can only control what we can control, right? So we start by doing what we can do for ourselves. Then Maybe we build on that a little bit. Maybe we ask a colleague to have coffee to talk through something. Maybe that becomes two colleagues. Maybe it becomes the whole team. Believe me, though, when we take the time to foster our own inner presence, colleagues actually do notice. Maybe someone in the office is paying attention, and then at least you've planted that seed. But then you asked about how do we use that space to help us process and progress? If the space exists, fostering growth still takes time and focus. 
but we're certainly the better for it. It's about our own commitment and intentionality first. And once we can gain a little traction with that, the rest definitely starts to flow. When you have that space to talk about challenges and difficulties in a meaningful way, you can do so with what I like to call a little mindful honey. Spreading mindful honey means you are mindful of your speech. You're mindful of your actions. And if you're in a leadership position, you're mindful of how you lead your teams. These are the ways in which we process and progress in a healthy way. Mindful honey. I love that. Mindful honey. Yeah. <laughs> so Jane, you know, our field is, is fundamentally about the overarching joy and the complexity of humanity. How can we engage more intently and live more fully? Or to use some contemporary vernacular, how can we lean into life? I'm going to use some 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 cheesy cliches here, Zach. So giving ourselves the chance to be present in our own lives is the first step, right? Towards towards living more fully. It, it is very, very cheesy, but it's it's really true. If we're always doing, 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 running from one thing to another, we quickly kind of lose sight of who we are, what we value. Contemplative habits give us a chance to slow down and connect to our inner person. Reconnection becomes rejuvenation. Rejuvenation becomes refocus. And refocus becomes a participatory reset. Yet another cheesy cliche, but participating in your own life actually means living more fully. And when we live more fully, it flows into everything we do. I have a a note on my desk. I can't remember where I got this saying from. I wish I did, but, but it's a powerful one for me anyway, that says, mindful awareness helps us recapture our signal, which enables us to become a beacon for others. I really believe when we are dialed into ourselves in a mindful, meaningful way, that mindful honey really starts to spread out towards others. It sounds delicious, doesn't it? Uh, So shifting our conversation just a little bit, um, and, and you've touched upon this a bit already, but what are a few resources that you would recommend to someone just starting on their mindfulness journey? First, I, I'm guessing your, your your audience already knows. You know, there are lots of different tools and resources that are out there. Probably the, the most obvious are things like you know apps that you have on your phone, uh, many of which are are wonderful. You know, Calm, Insight Timer. Those are a few. Those are popular. There are plenty of really good podcasts out there about mindfulness. One that I think is is notable because it's just got an interesting approach is 10% Happier by Dan Harris. There's lots of books and journals, but honestly, I I think the best way to start is to allow yourself an opportunity to sit and be for a few minutes. It may seem a little scary, but just sitting and being can make a big difference. But, you know, we already breathe. We don't need anybody 
to teach us that. Sit and be with your breath for two minutes. Listen to your breath. Feel it going in and out. Do that a few times. If it feels good, set a little timer on your phone to do it with some sort of regularity. And once you've started that, then go look for some external resources. John Cabot Zinn is oftentimes called the father of Western mindfulness meditation, and he's done some incredible research. Um, he's the founder of the MBSR um, approach, mindfulness-based stress reduction program out of UMass Amherst. Amazing work. He's written some incredible books such as Full Catastrophe Living and Wherever You Go, There You Are. Sharon Salzberg has written some really compelling books, much of which has to do with the workplace environment. For those who are interested in some of the science behind meditation, there's a great book that came out in um, 2017 called Altered Traits by Dan Goleman and Richard Davidson. That's really good to read. And, and I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention Thich Nhat Hanh, the monk known for bringing mindfulness meditation to the Western world. And uh, just a little anecdotal piece, a lot of his foundational approach has now been built into corporate trainings. Probably one of the most famous is one that Google does, uh, which is pretty interesting. I will also caution your listeners, though, that there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of junk out there, too, about uh, mindfulness meditation. It's trending, right? It, it, but that makes it a double-edged sword. So it, it's like everything else. Do your homework, and you'll start to discover who the profound voices are. And try things. And good things will happen. Yeah, I love that. Uh, thank you. So why is taking time for contemplation so important? And how could we begin to carve out time for this practice? And more importantly, perhaps, how could it help us to be better international educators? The first part of this is, you know, as we talked about, you know, leaning into life, taking the time for contemplation allows for reset and reconnection. And the, the best way to do that is to incorporate it into our daily lives in small ways and, and, and big ones. For me, I'll share something, you know, as much as I'm not keen on getting up super early, I get up every morning with enough time to meditate for 20 minutes. This has become a habit for me. So when I don't do it, if I'm traveling or something, I, I feel off. But I, I also build in mindfulness at work, when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning, when I'm standing in line at the grocery store, when I'm pumping gas in my car. There's lots of different ways that we can do this. And then to your second point, how can it help us become better international educators. This, this is just to me at, at the core of, of one of the reasons why I just think it's so important for us to be having these conversations. Let's face it, international educators need mad skills. Our jobs are complicated. We are required to be problem solvers, communicators, negotiators, creators, we have to be clear-headed. We have to be able to separate our emotions from regulations, which is oftentimes 
very challenging to do. We need to be empathetic. We need to be able to sort through data. And importantly, we also need to work with many different stakeholders, many of whom have interests that are completely antithetical to what we do. And for, you know, many of us, this is certainly true for me, these are challenging skills and they're challenging to acquire, let alone be any good at. If you look at the foundational characteristics of the, the, the human persona, there are many that contemplative practice supports and nurtures. These include things like creativity, social intelligence, gratitude, hope, curiosity, perseverance. When I look at the, that beautiful NAFSA wheel of professional competencies, I see mindfulness all over it, regulating emotions, metacognition, non-judgment, equanimity. These are all attributes that can be used in every one of those competencies, and those are attributes that are at the core of what mindfulness is. It's almost like, you know, building, like you said earlier about habit stacking, you know, learning, getting in the habit of exercising every morning, right? Not necessarily an easy thing to start doing, but once you get in that habit, it becomes hard to not do it. So what, a, what an interesting comparison that is. So one silver lining of, of today's challenges is that mental health and mindfulness are topics that are front of mind and ones we are seeing more openness discussing than perhaps ever before. How would you like to see this aspect continue to evolve? so that we can be better international educators and better humans? That's, that's a dream question. That's my, my dream question right there. Mindfulness practice and training should be part of any comprehensive professional development plan. No matter what someone's role is, they become better and more proficient at whatever it is if they're given an opportunity to sharpen their professional skills, right? Professional development is learning to be better at our job. Contemplative practice makes us better at our jobs. So let's make it part of that professional development discussion. Yes, it should be talked about at the employee benefit fair, but more importantly, it should be talked about at the leadership table. People should be given an opportunity to learn how mindful attributes make for better team dynamics, better team functionality, make for better leadership, make for better output and productivity, and make for better strategy, better strategic thinking. We're more creative when, we've, when we're you know, right here in the here and now. Professional success is about professional health. And professional health is intrinsically linked to our own physical and mental health. So let's talk about breath work in team meetings. Let's talk about how our mindful habits are helping us. As we begin to wrap up here, I just have a few more questions for you. What skills come out of sustained contemplative practice? Some of the skills most profoundly supported, I think, by contemplative practice are, are things like emotional regulation, metacognition, that concentration and focus. I mean, let's face it, we all need to be able to get into workflow states from time to time. Memory cognition active listening, problem solving, resilience. How nice would it be to know our work life, especially, doesn't have to be hijacked by 
stress, anxiety, anger, or fear if we're better able to utilize those types of skills. Zach, you know what? I mean, the world is never going to slow down. We're not coming into work tomorrow with a gift basket full of new staffing positions or larger office spaces. Our budgets are not going to grow. Our students will likely become more needy than they already are. But we all have the ability to choose how we work, how we live, how we build those skills, and how to thrive. If we can get to that point where awareness is built into our lives in tangible ways, we thrive. So I'll offer up a little challenge to your listeners. There's a woman named Sandy Bankin. She's a, a mindful leadership consultant and said this at a, at a conference one time. Be where your feet are. It's so easy to get caught up in reliving and pre-living in life. For today, simply practice being where your feet are. So today, Zach, you get to be where your feet are. Be aware in the moment. Give power to your paws. That's another one of my my favorite little little, uh, breadcrumb nuggets. Invite your colleagues to do that. Invite your students to do that and see what happens. I love it. That's very, you know, uh, very tangible, a very tangible action that one can take. I love that. This year, we're celebrating World Stride's 55th anniversary by collecting the life-changing moments of participants on our programs. It's been a lot of fun to read everybody's stories. So Jane, what was your life-changing moment? So when I first got into international education, I was much more involved with international student services. And I think for me as an international educator, my greatest life-changing moment was, was actually sort of a, a culmination of, of little things that, that happened and stories that I heard and things that I was able to learn about some of our international students. And that is the power that those students and their families demonstrated through their commitment to being able to get an education in the United States is is profoundly moving. And so over the years, as I would meet students from all across the globe and you hear their stories, you learn these amazing things that you know people are, you know, they've wanted to come to the United States since they were you know, eight years old, and that's always been their goal. And their parents have supported them, and their aunts and uncles have supported them, and their cousins have supported them. They that drive has been just incredibly meaningful for me to always draw back to when I, you know, get sort of stuck in that in that quagmire. Oftentimes, that that so easily happens when we are, you know when it's budget season and, you know, quota season and all of that, um, it's really, really important to be thinking about um, the dreams and the goals of the people who we work with, the students who we work with, whether they're international students or students who plan to study abroad. So that's a little bit of a long-winded way of saying that, that for me, it's those aha moments always came back to hearing my students' stories. 
I love that so much. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Jane. Insightful as always. Uh, and so for my final question, I would like to ask you, um, as you think about education abroad in 2023, what makes you hopeful? It's a little bit of a segue from, from what I was just talking about. I am uh, very hopeful whenever I have conversations with students about what they want to do. Like, Why do they want to go abroad? The answers are remarkable. The answers are remarkable. I think what I find so remarkable and, and so hopeful is the number of students who tell me that they want to have an experience like this because they want to challenge themselves. They want to grow. They know that they need to push themselves to have some of these experiences. And I find that to be an unbelievably hopeful thing, especially during these times when so much of what our external noise is about insulating, isolating, closing in. I am very, very hopeful as I listen to students talk about their dreams for the world, the way they think they can make an impact and they can make um, some positive change. That's what, that's what keeps me going every day. I love it. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end it than right there. Uh, Jane Berkeley-Berry, thank you so much for your time today. It's been just a joyous conversation. I couldn't appreciate you more. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. Thanks.